Can all of the children up through the eighth grade come up here? Maybe even those that consider themselves young at heart. You can come up too, you know. It's the altar of God. I love your dress. You're welcome. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, good morning. Oh, man, here it is. Good morning, everyone. How is everyone this morning? Good, yeah. Did you guys have a big breakfast? No. Oh, I'm sorry. Yogurt and banana. We'll tell you what, after the service, you can tell your parents that Father Michael says you can go have some donuts after the service if you guys miss breakfast. How does that sound? Speaking of food, have you guys ever missed lunch just like you missed breakfast this morning? No, you've never missed lunch? You've missed lunch? And dinner? Man, goodness gracious. Does it count when you fast? Well, yeah, that's a good point. Sometimes we miss lunch and dinner on purpose because we're fasting and we're preparing our hearts to be able to listen closer to Jesus. I remember whenever I was in school, I believe I was in the seventh grade, uh, it was a point whenever I had to pack my own lunch. My mom stopped packing my lunch for me, and so I packed my own lunch, and there was one day I just plum forgot to pack my lunch. And I got to school and it was lunchtime and I was surrounded by all of my friends and they noticed I didn't have a lunch. So to my friend's credit, back in junior high school, whenever I was in seventh grade, they all kind of collected like one part of their lunch that they could part with and then they gave me enough food from their lunches so that I could have something to eat during my lunch and so that way I didn't have to go without a lunch for a meal, right? And that was pretty nice of them. So how sad would I have been if my friends who had extra food to give me decided, you know what, I actually do want this extra piece of sandwich and maybe this half of a banana that I want to eat, how sad would I have been? I would have been pretty bummed. I would have been pretty hungry still, right? Well, our gospel lesson for today, whenever Deacon Jennifer came out into the middle there and read the story about a rich man and Lazarus, right? Kathy, what did I say? Oh, goodness gracious. Deacon Kathy read that story. That's a story about there was this, there was this man named Lazarus who was really hungry, and he, he kind of almost stayed all day outside of this man who had all of this extra food to give to him and never gave him any extra food. Isn't that sad? And so what Jesus is trying to teach us through that story is that if we have some extra things to give and we notice somebody around us or in our life that maybe needs some of that extra things that we need, that, that we have that we can give away, to go ahead and give it to them. Yeah? This we're supposed to, if we have something to give, we're supposed to give it to others. Because Jesus gave himself to us. Yeah? So next time maybe you're at lunch or at school and you have some extra food to give away, you know someone's looking a little hungry, maybe try giving it away. See how it feels, yeah? All right. Thank you guys for coming up. I believe you guys want a packet. You can go get a packet from over here, and you can go back to your parents and pews. Thank y'all. Good job, y'all.
Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Father Michael Schwant. I'm the Associate Rector and Youth Minister here at St. Timothy's Anglican Church. Uh, Father Stan, who is the rector here, is uh, out of town. He's on a cruise with a number of the other parishioners here. Uh, they did get out of the port without much confusion um, with Hurricane Fiona. I don't know how that's going to affect their cruise while they're out a cruising, but I guess we can all ask them when they get back what, what change, if any, did it make on their cruise, but do keep them in your prayers as they enjoy themselves. I do mention that because last Sunday, Father Stain preached a sermon on a parable about the uh, clever steward, maybe it's how it's called in your Bible, maybe it's called something else, and the current parable that we're going to be diving into this Sunday is the rich man and Lazarus, and it's actually a, a pair of parables, but um, a pair of parables, and Jesus is teaching these parables, he's laying out these parables because he's talking to the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees were these group of people that wandered around in Jesus' day and age. Uh, you might hear them referred to as the religious leaders, uh, which is true. They are, some of them were religious leaders, didn't have to be. You could be a lay person, still be considered a Pharisee. But Pharisees were the people in Jesus' day and age that wanted to bring an extra blessing on the people of Israel, so they decided they were going to, to use a, a current phrase that we would use in today's day and age, double down on following the law of the Lord, right? If the law of the Lord said, thou shalt run a mile every day, they would be the people that would say, well, we're going to get up and we're going to run five miles just to make sure we run the one mile, right? So that's a Pharisee. And what scripture tells us about Pharisees is they were lovers of money. So Jesus is teaching us these pair of parables that deal with wealth and what we are supposed to do with wealth when we have something extra in our lives, what we're supposed to do with it. And what we're going to find as we walk through this parable, what we're going to discover is that Jesus, he refers to the Pharisees as whitewashed tombs elsewhere in the gospel, not necessarily here. And what he's saying is that on, on the outside, you know, if you see a, see a tomb that's maybe made of beautiful marble, it looks very pretty on the outside, right? But inside, there's just death and decay, right? The Pharisees on the outside had everything going on, but on the inside, their hearts were what's mattered. So what we're going to discover as we walk through this parable, we're going to see that God is more concerned with matters of the heart than with outward appearances, God is more concerned with matters of the heart than with outward appearances. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to get your Bible out in front of you. If you need to borrow one of the bulletin scripture inserts, have that in front of you. There should be a pew Bible that you could borrow. There should also be, if you want to use your cell phone, you're more than welcome to do that. Get Open your Bible app, right? Have the scripture in front of you as we go through that. And as you guys are turning to Luke chapter 16, Verses 19 through 31, that's where we're going to be today. The three questions we're going to be asking ourselves as we walk through this passage of scriptures, we're going to ask ourselves concerning the rich man and Lazarus, who were they? What happened to them? And why does it matter? Who were they? What happened to them? And why does it matter? So let's dive in. Luke chapter 16, or verses 19 through 20. We're just going to read those two verses to start off with. And it says, There was a rich man who dressed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. 
But at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, whose body was covered with sores, who longed to eat what fell from the rich man's table. In addition, the dogs came and licked his sores. Now, my translation may be slightly different than yours there, but don't panic. It's nice to have a wealth of translations to read from. But you don't need to have a PhD in New Testament Greek to necessarily understand what Luke is trying to do in these first two verses, right? We have a clear comparison going on. We have a clear dichotomy being presented to us. We have a man who is described as a rich man and a poor man named Lazarus, right? Just take a note that Lazarus has a name and the rich man doesn't. That's going to be important later on, that Lazarus is the only one that's named and the rich man doesn't. But we have this clear comparison, right? Rich man and poor man, right? We can understand that with our 21st century Western eyes, which are not bad eyes to have, right? They're wonderful. However, if we were first century Jews who would have been the original audience for this parable as Jesus would have taught it, we would have understood a couple extra things about this parable, right? And so I'm just going to walk you through those things that they would have understood, right? So the first thing we read is that he was dressed in purple. Now, the color purple is, has been associated with royalty and with wealth and with power. And the reason why is because it was very expensive to make the color purple in Jesus' day and age. It was expensive to dye clothes just like anyway, whatever color you chose to dye them as. Uh, but specifically, purple was expensive. The reason why purple was expensive is you actually had to find a specific crustacean from a specific part of where Jesus' and their whole compadres lived in that day and age. And you took this crustacean, it's a very small shell, and you had to take a great quantity of these small shells to make a very small amount of purple dye, right? So it was a very expensive process because it was a very hard shell to find. You needed to find a lot of them. And even from a great quantity of these shells, you can make a small amount of purple dye, right? So purple is a very expensive color to make. So we would have known if we were first century Jews that, oh, this man dresses in purple, right? He has so much money around, sometimes you do purple for like something really fancy like a tablecloth or something. But no, he gets to dress in purple, right? Dresses in purple. And he's in fine linen. Now, I remember when my wife, Rachel, and I, we were engaged and we were planning our wedding, we would get to choose for our, uh, for our ceremony and for the reception. We got to choose tablecloths and napkins and forks and knives and cups and plates and flowers and everything that has to do with party, right? And because we had to look at all of these day in and day out trying to plan for that great ceremony, we uh, very quickly began to discern cloth that was of a higher quality as opposed to cloth that's not of a higher quality, right? It doesn't take you know, a rocket scientist to figure out if a tablecloth looks nice, often it's nice, right? So what we learn is that the fabric that this man is dressed in not only has been dyed purple, but it's a high quality fabric, right? So he's taking high quality fabric and he's dyeing it purple. That's his clothes, right? So this man is very wealthy. And the final, the thing that we learn just in that first verse is that he feasted sumptuously every day. Your translation may have you lived in luxury or something along those lines. And the idea that was being presented to the first century Jews is that he had Thanksgiving dinner 24-7, 365, right? He laid out a 12-course meal for breakfast, for lunch, and for dinner, right? In the Schwant household growing up, we would have uh, Easter brunch 
after Easter service on Sunday, we would come back to our house and we'd have this big meal to celebrate Jesus' resurrection, right? So having a big meal as a celebration is not a bad thing, but this guy was having it every single day for every single meal, right? This guy had so much money, he didn't know what to spend it on, right? He just kept buying more things and eating more food and doing more things, right? He was wealthy on wealthy on wealthy, right? He's very, very rich. And we're going to keep that in mind. We're going to keep that in mind. So this very wealthy person, we're going to compare that with Lazarus, right? So let's figure out how Lazarus is presented. Verse 20, but at his gate, side note, we now know that the rich man is rich enough to have a property large enough that needs a wall that has a gate, right? So again, very wealthy. But Lazarus was at his gate, whose body was covered with sores, who longed to eat what fell from the rich man's table. In addition, the dogs came and licked his sores. So Lazarus, his body is covered with some sort of skin condition where he has these sores uh, that cover his body, right? He most likely would have been laid at Lazarus's gate so he could beg, so he's a beggar. We also know that the dogs came and licked his sores, right? So you and I, whenever we read this passage, Again, reading with our 21st century Western eyes, which are not bad eyes, but we see this, oh, dogs, man's best friend, right? Clearly, this is a good thing. Dogs make great pets. You cat people, I pray for you. I really do. I pray that you will see dogs light one day. No, but you and I, we see this and say, oh, dog, it makes a great pet, right? But we need to understand that dogs were not house pets in Jesus' day and age, right? What if I told you if at my house I had a flock of pet vultures? You would probably send an email to Father Stan and say, hey, have you had a conversation with Father Michael recently? I'm a little worried about him. He has a flock of vultures. No, dogs in Jesus' day and age were considered impure, disgusting scavengers. They were the lowest of the low. So the idea being presented here is that we have Lazarus covered in sores. He begs as his main way he gets food and money. And the only creature that's willing to come up to him are dogs, right? So the first century Jews would have understood what Jesus is setting up here. They would say, I see you, Jesus. I know what you're trying to do. Because in their day and age, they would have understood that your actions equals the amount of blessing you have and the amount of righteousness you have. So they would have expected Jesus to say something along the lines of, oh, well, the rich man, clearly he's this righteous person because he's rich, right? He clearly, therefore, deserves it, right? Lazarus clearly has done something to deserve what he has done, right? We can understand this because if we go to the Gospel of John, to the story of the blind man who was born blind, whom Jesus restores his sight, one of the questions that the Pharisees, the same people we're talking to here, ask Jesus is, Rabbi, who is it that sent this man or his parents? Because to them, clearly he's done something to deserve being born blind. Clearly Lazarus has done something to be this poor and this destitute, right? To take an Old Testament example, we have Job, the person of Job. At the beginning of Job, when all of the bad things are happening to Job, his wife and his friends keep saying, you clearly have done something to deserve this. 
So just confess what you've done. And if you go read Job, what you realize is that Job has not done anything, right? So that's the, that's the, 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 the view that they would have had in these first two verses. Is they would have expected Jesus to say, this rich man has all of this blessing, he clearly must be righteous, and this poor man must have done something to deserve his station in life, right? And what we are going to very shortly discover is that's not the case at all. Jesus and God, by proxy, is more concerned with matters of the heart than with outward appearances. But who were they? Rich man, very, very, very rich. Poor man named Lazarus, very, very, very poor. Just remember, keep a note that Lazarus has a name and the rich man is not named. That's going to become important. So who were they? Rich and poor, polar opposites. Point two, what happened to them? Verses 22 through 26. That's what we're going to read. 22 through 26. Now the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, as he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far off with Lazarus at his side. So he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in anguish in this fire. But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus likewise his bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. Besides all this, a great chasm has been fixed between us, so that those who want to cross over from here to you cannot do so, and no one can cross from there to us. So what has happened? Right. So both the rich man and Lazarus we can discern from the text, have died at the same time, around the same time, but they both die, right? And they both go to one of the two respective places that you can go to, right? So we have here, the King James translates this as Abraham's bosom. I don't know if you've ever heard that phrase used before, but that's where we get this. It's from this passage and from the King James translation. But at Abraham's side, right? Scripture teaches us that those that have faith in God go to be with God when they die, right? So we can discern that Lazarus has gone to go be with the Lord, right? And we know that this rich man, he is in this place called Hades. Maybe it's called Gehenna or Sheol, but it's hell. Fire, torment, we get the picture, right? And what we have discovered is that death is this great equalizer, right? The rich man had all of these possessions and all of these things that separated him from Lazarus in life. His wealth, his clothes, his wall. But in death, all of that is stripped away. And Lazarus, he has all of these things that separated him from the rich man. The dogs, the sickness, his station in life, his poverty, right? But in death, all of that is stripped away, right? And so now they're on this equal playing field, and what we're going to see is that we're going to see the matter of their heart, right? What is at the heart of the issue? We're focusing on the rich man because he's the kind of the the main character of the story, as we're going to see. So what happens? The rich man calls out to Father Abraham and says, can you send Lazarus to dip the finger in the water and cool my tongue, right? What does this tell us about the rich man? What this should tell us is that the rich man is incredibly selfish. Even in death, 
Even in death, he won't even speak to Lazarus. And what you will notice is that the rich man used Lazarus's name, which means the rich man recognizes Lazarus, he would have known about Lazarus in life, chose not to give him anything, even though he had food and wealth in excess, and even in death, when all of that wealth is stripped away, what we find is that he still won't even address Lazarus directly. He says, Abraham, can you send Lazarus to give me some water? Even in death, he still thinks he deserves to be waited upon and that Lazarus is the person that's going to be doing the serving, still trying to boss him around. And there we have it. The rich man's heart is laid bare before us. He is this incredibly selfish individual. And here's the point that I want to make. Jesus Christ, and because we're good Trinitarian Christians, we know that the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is not against wealthy people. He's not. There's too many godly, wealthy individuals in Scripture for God to be against wealth. What God and what Jesus is trying to teach us here is what to do with that wealth, right? If you read the end of our epistle lesson, 1 Timothy, it's saying that if you are wealthy, be generous with your wealth. Give to those that need something, right? Because this rich man, Lazarus, was at his gate every single day and he chose to ignore him day in and day out. Can you imagine walking by someone in that much of a need and saying, no, no. And even in death, we see his true colors. Even in death, won't even talk to him and is saying, Father Abraham, will you send Lazarus to fetch me some water? So what happened to them? Death was this great equalizer. And we see the rich man for who he truly is. Point three, why does it matter? Why is Jesus telling us this story? Why does it matter? Let's read on. Verses 27 through to the end of 31. So the rich man said, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers to warn them so they don't come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. They must respond to them. Then the rich man said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He replied to them, If they do not respond to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Brothers and sisters, why does this story matter? Why are we hearing about it this morning? Why does this matter? Because the gospel matters. What we have here is Abraham says that they have Moses and the prophets, right? At the writing of Luke, that would have been the Holy Scriptures to them. You and I have the benefit of having the New Testament along with that. We have the only tool we need to discover life and to life abundantly. And the gospel and life in the church is in this book right here. That is all that is necessary. And what we have is, and if you are listening to this passage of Scripture and you're maybe feeling a little uncomfortable, right? 
That's what parables do. That's the whole point of parables, right? If maybe you're feeling a little uncomfortable because let's just name the elephant in the room, brothers and sisters. We are very blessed and very lucky to live in a part of the world and in a country that when we compare it to the rest of the world is just very wealthy. And I'm not trying to say that we don't have money problems in this parish. I'm not saying that times are not tough, right? Inflation is going up. Gas is expensive. The economy, we don't know what's going on with that. I'm not trying to say times are not hard. But if we just take the amount of wealth that we have and compare it with the rest of the world, we have a lot. So if we read this parable, we should feel a little uncomfortable. But I have good news. I have good news. There is grace and forgiveness found in Christ Jesus. After we finish the sermon, what are we going to have? Because we are Anglican Christians, we will have this wonderful and beautiful opportunity to respond to the message preached here today. You will notice before we come forward to the altar every single Sunday, what do we do? We confess our sins. We confess our sins because we acknowledge that as try as we might, there are parts of us that simply cannot get it right. And so we need to confess our sins and we come forward to the altar, we come forward to the foot of the cross and we say, yes, Jesus Christ, your sacrifice is sufficient to cover my sins. We eat the bread, we drink the wine. Grace is imparted to us through that because we believe that he's present in the elements and we are sustained and we are made stronger by his blood and his body to go forward and to be the church that the world so desperately needs because what happens Whenever you begin to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, whenever you accept his sacrifice on the cross, what happens is that his love, God's love, enters into your heart. And what will happen is that it will slowly begin to change who you are and your values and what you consider valuable in this life and so that when you leave this place, you will not help yourself but see Lazaruses everywhere. And then you'll go do something about it. Because that's the world that we live in today. Whenever we pray the Lord's Prayer, there's this beautiful line that says, on earth as it is in heaven. That's what we're supposed to be, heaven on earth, to a world that so desperately needs some heaven in their life. So I don't know where you are today, brothers and sisters. I don't know what the Holy Spirit is convicting you of this morning, but just know that there's grace, there's love, and that there's forgiveness found in Jesus that should then, in turn, cause us to go forth into a world that needs to hear the gospel. So why does it matter? Why is this story here? Why are we even talking about it this morning? Because the gospel matters. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.